put up long, short straws. And um, you might be wondering, sitting there also, thinking, what's the relevance of this going to be to me? You might feel like you're the most unreligious person that's ever existed. Um, and I think it's true that uh, we all have a, have a pretty good feel or a sense of what religiousness is. And the sense that we have is that it's not very nice. Um, and um, I think that's something very real there. I, I think quite clearly that actually um, seeing it in others, sniffing it out in others,
bring back men. That we are kept safe ourselves. We keep other people safe when we're out in our car. We have to learn how to read and interpret the signs. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, of course, says, um, refers to things and did things which he himself called signs. I mean, the most obvious examples are his healings. And those healings were meant to show people who he was, where he had come from, and the sorts of things that he wanted to do for people. But you know, when, as in this passage, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus and ask for a sign, Something very different is going on. Something religious is going on. And so let's have a look at this and try and see what it is that Jesus is talking about here. What exactly is it? What is religiousness? Well, I think the characteristics are pretty obvious. Um, Look, for example, in verse 1. And we see there that this group of people, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they tried to catch Jesus out. The word used here is that they tested him with their questions. And the sense of the test is that they were expecting Jesus to fail the tests that he was, they were giving him. That he wouldn't make the pass grade of their examination. That's the sense of the testing that is here. And note that they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. That's significant. They're, they're saying to Jesus, don't show us any old sign. Don't show us, you know, these signs that you've been doing, like, you know, healing somebody. Clearly they weren't sick themselves. They dismissed that as pretty unimportant. Now show us a sign from heaven. They're asking for Jesus to demonstrate something that is very spectacular, that has some sort of divine quality, maybe something written in the sky, something something like that. Show us a sign from heaven. Isn't it interesting how Jesus responds? He, he says to them, hang on, you can't even read the signs that I've given you, and yet you're asking for a sign. And he goes on to talk about, you're pretty good at uh, reading the signs of the weather, you come up with these little proverbial sayings that we all have. Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Red sky in morning, shepherd's warning. You can, you can figure out how to read those kinds of signs. But verse 3, you cannot read the signs of the times. What he's actually saying to them is that you are asking for a sign from heaven, and the sign from heaven is standing right in front of you, and you can't see it. Jesus is the sign from heaven. He is the one come from the Father to show us the Father, and they cannot see it. You know, the, this group, the, the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees, these were the guys that, who were devout in studying the Old Testament scriptures. And of course, the Old Testament scriptures are full of references about God's coming visitation. There would come a time when there would be a day of visitation when when God himself would come to help his people. And the day of visitation had come, 
it was right there in their midst, and they could not see it. There is this awful blindness in them. Some people can see the signs, others seem not to be able to. And as we read through uh, more of God's Word in the New Testament particularly, we are helped to see that actually it's not just the Pharisees and the scribes that suffer from this poor eyesight, spiritual eyesight, we're all blind. There's something about humanity, something about our heart, that until Jesus comes and touches us and enables us to see what is really important, to see the things that can't be seen just in the natural, then we are blind. And our greatest need is to be like um, that blind man, Bartimaeus, when Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? His answer was, I want to see. The greatest need of any person to be able to say to Jesus, I want to see. I want to see what is really important, what you have done for me, where we're all going, where we're headed in this life, what there is to do, all of these things. Now, the problem uh, with this group is their rule book thinking about God. I think that's one way that we can think about it. They have a rule book thinking about God. And I think that comes in many forms. That's another way of thinking about religiousness. Back in the previous chapter, Jesus again is trying to, you know, help and and deal and confront this group of people and this kind of thinking. And essentially he says in those opening verses of chapter 15, the thing that by which we recognize what religiousness is, is that people want to make additions to what God has actually said and revealed. It's referred there in verse 2 of the previous chapter as the traditions of the elders. And so people in religiousness add tradition after tradition after tradition to what people are obliged to do. And it ends up being a burden on people. It ends up being the sapping of life out of people and causing them to experience something that is very different from God's intention. If you look on down in the previous chapter, we come to verse 9 where Jesus quotes um, the prophet Isaiah as um, where he was prophesying about this tendency in the human heart to make what God has given, his good news, into something religious. And he says, verse 9, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. It's about rules, this religiousness. And more than that, in that previous chapter, Jesus points out that religiousness has a way of cancelling out the very things that God has said. The commands of God, it somehow twists those, it obscures what God has said, and it elevates the traditions of these rules, these extra rules. And uh, certainly the way that the commandments get twisted, those loving guidelines that God has given so that we live life well, they get twisted. We begin to think that there's something else, this great heavy thing, this this restriction of our freedom, 
when they're just the reverse of that, they're God's way of showing us how we can connect with God and connect with people and how life can go well and work well for us in the way that he intended. Now just note that in this interchange that Jesus is not going to play their game. He's not going to perform a spine on demand for them as though he had to pass their test.
about what is going on here. Be on your guard because there is danger. There's something very dangerous here. And again, if you glance back to his teaching in the previous chapter, when he's talking about this subject again, down to verse 14, one of the reasons that it's dangerous is that those who are teaching this, teaching religiousness, are actually blind guides. That's the way that Jesus refers to them. So if you follow them, you're going to end up both falling into a ditch, and that's dangerous. You're going to fall into a pit, and you'll be left for dead in that pit. Do you remember when uh, Joseph in the Old Testament, uh, by his jealous brothers, was thrown into a pit? They just left him for dead. Sold into captivity, into Egypt. And Jesus is saying here, this is what this will do. This religious, this rule book thinking about God will cause you to fall into a pit. And I, I wonder if you have ever wondered, I've been thinking about this over the last week particularly, ever wondered why in the Gospels we have such a strong reaction from Jesus when he encounters this kind of thinking and this kind of behavior. I mean, we all love Jesus when we read read the passages of the Gospels and the way that he treats people. But when it comes to this group, whoa! I mean, such a strong reaction. I mean, it really stirs his anger. Have you ever wondered why that is? Why does that cause that in the Son of God? I think at the heart of it, it is because Jesus sees that it is misrepresenting his Father. That is not what he is like. And it really stirs him. It misrepresents him. And it, and, and, and it, it causes him to um, be appalled by the thought that people are, are being taught something that is not true of who God is. I don't know if you've ever been misrepresented in your life. One of the most hurtful, damaging things that, you know, emotionally probably we can experience. Well, Jesus feels that when his father is misrepresented. And as I say, he's appalled, angered. Don't teach that. It's basically what he's saying to them. You know, I didn't go to the cross so that you could have a relationship with a rule book. I went to the cross so that you could become the friends of God. It's very different. It's very different. And I guess it leads us on. One of the big questions for us is to be asking ourselves, asking the Holy Spirit, you know, am I a person who is rule-motivated in life or love-motivated? Is my heart connected to the way the Father is or to the way religiousness? image of yeast in verse 6. And um, we know that what he's talking about is the teaching, the religious teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes, because if you look down to the last verse, verse 12, he actually uh, actually specified there that's what he's talking about. He's not giving some dietary you know, suggestion to us, saying having nothing to do with yeast. He's actually using it 
as an image for this kind of teaching. And the picture is one that is saying to us the, the effects of yeast on dough are clear. What it does is that it puffs it up. It expands it. It fills it with gas. If the enzymes, you know, work on the sugar, create CO2, and the whole thing just balloons. It's not a very flattering picture of their teaching of what it does. It puffs people up. Puffs themselves up. And the other thing to notice about the image that he uses is that it has a very strong resonance with the Passover. Uh, with that exodus that took place uh, when God got his people out of captivity and put them on the road to freedom. And you'll remember on that first Passover meal, the meal they had before they left Egypt, there was no yeast used in the bread in their last meal. They were in a hurry. They didn't have time for that. They, they wanted to get the priority for them was to get to freedom, not to through the motions of what they normally did. Now, this uh, image, I mean, clearly lends itself to, to metaphorical use and understanding and so on. You know, the rule book of the Pharisees and the Sadducees looks harmless, as harmless as dirt. You put a little bit of yeast into some flour, it really doesn't look any different. It looks much the same, it gets mixed together, and it, it just looks, looks the same. about that exodus, that great thing 
Egyptian people. So it's one thing for God to get people out of Egypt. It was another thing to get Egypt out of God's people. And the, the reading, the journey that they then go on illustrates how getting that old life out of them was something that God was wanting to do, but it took some process in their lives for that to happen. You know, what religiousness does is that it is intent on, on putting control upon people. That's what religiousness does. It wants to control others. Grace is entirely different. Grace is entirely different. Grace wants to free people into a place where they can experience self-control, given by the Spirit of God, working the fruit of the Spirit into our lives, and us growing in maturity with a loving Heavenly Father, so that we can be self-controlled, not have control placed on us, possibly coming from our own heart or from some authority figure who wants that to happen. It's entirely different. And we are being called into this to mature by being in a relationship with a loving Heavenly Father who wants to bring us into that place of freedom. Well, let me wrap this up this morning. How do we get free? Uh, how do we stay free in our lives? There's three very simple things to, to conclude with. We need, first of all, to take heed. We really need to take heed. We have to, this is a warning that Jesus gives. We mustn't just dismiss it and think this is, doesn't really apply to me. There are moments in our, Christians li- in our Christian lives where urgency is required, where we need to be in a hurry. Just as the people, when they left Egypt, they really needed to be in a hurry. And this is one of them. This is one of those occasions where Jesus would say to us, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Because there's too much at stake. We're talking about different lives here. There's too much at stake. And so are we ready to take action now? Secondly, what needs to be left behind? What would God have us leave behind? You know, at the celebration of the Passover, what they had to do is to clear out of their houses any trace of yeast, any trace of leather from the previous week or the previous there can't be anything. They do that in commemoration of that first Passover when they were leave, leaving Egypt. It reminds them, yeah, they were traveling light. They didn't use it. They just left it all behind. And the question is, what do we need to clear out of our lives? Are there things that we are carrying that actually are just slowing down our walk with Jesus? They're, they're kind of like a weight. They're, they're an encumbrance. Um, and I guess there are lots of things that, that, that they could be used about God that actually misrepresenting that we are still carrying along. We actually believe certain things about them which are not true. Okay. It may be that we are making judgments of other people. And you know, both of these things end up crippling and fouling up our walk and the walk of other people unless we leave them behind. With God's help, we get to a point where they're cleared out of our lives, they're laid down, and they're left in Egypt. And we go into a new place with God's power. And thirdly, 
And, and the Holy Spirit will show us, to be honest with you, what we need to leave behind. And then thirdly, we need to receive what Jesus wants to give us. You know, he's, he's a good God. He has so much to give us. So much that he wants us to experience and, and to give us. And I guess the, the, the greatest thing is that he wants to give us daily friendship with himself. But that's really renewed in our lives. It's refreshed in our lives that we, we end up loving above all else a sort of an intimate walk, a relational walk with Jesus in the course of everyday life. We go out into the world every day with that sense of partnering with him. What's he doing? What's the Father doing? How's he, how's he wanting to bless people, touch people? What's he wanting me to see? All of those things. How can I be something of him in the world today? That's an amazing gift that God wants to put upon us and to pour into our hearts. And I love the way, final thought, I love the way in verse 9 of our, our passage where Jesus is trying to help his disciples who are puzzled with this teaching, what Jesus is trying to communicate to them. He says, don't you remember about when you fed the 5,000? And do you notice what he particularly asks? And how many basketfuls you collected up? Well, to his disciples. How many were there? There were 12. There were 12. One for each of them. Not only has his goodness and his provision fed 5,000 people, each of them get a doggy bag, each of them, that's going to last them for the rest of the week, probably a huge basket full of stuff. It's a little picture, isn't it, of God's goodness, of his provision. This is the sort of God that Jesus is wanting to point to, a loving Heavenly Father who cares, cares for people. So Jesus says to us, Ditch the rule book and come with me and learn to love the world in the way that I do. Amen. Would you like to stand? I'd love to pray. Let's just um, know that the Lord's Spirit is here. Let's just welcome Him.
picture as I'm thinking about that image. I saw a picture in my mind of, of um, an artesian spring in that reservoir being just erupting. And from the bottom up, like the spirit of the water of God, living water just rising up, bubbling up.